Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a a short story called The Minister's Black Veil. So in this story, the young pastor, his name is Reverend Hooper, shows up at worship one morning, not in a red Santa jacket, but in a black veil, covering everything but his mouth. He noticed quickly, doing this, that the veil changed him. He got up to preach, and Hawthorne writes, The veil shook with his measured breath as he gave out the psalm. It, it, it threw its obscurity between him and the holy page as he read the scriptures. And while he prayed, the veil lay heavily on his uplifted countenance. Did he seek to hide it from the dread being whom he was addressing? One woman said, I don't like it. He's, he's changed himself into something awful only by hiding his face. Before the veil, Hooper was a good preacher, but after the veil, he found he had some sort of power that made him feel like, a, like another person. And the people were in a sort of wonder. Reverend Hooper became mysterious. So he decided to keep wearing the veil. He wore it in his daily duties. He wore it at funerals. He wore it at weddings. And the mystery of this pastor grew. It grew between him and his people. And the people were afraid to even ask about the veil. Like, like why are you doing this? No one said a word, and the, and the veil remained. He, he ended up wearing it at home with his fiancée. And she regretted it because she liked to look upon his face. And the dark shadow grew. He stopped looking at himself in the mirror. He avoided his gaze in any reflection. But the veil remained. And he found that it made him efficient as a clergyman. He became a man of power, of awful power. He had, he had a pull over sinners, it appeared. They, they said before he drew them out into the light, they were with him behind the black veil. He became the minister of the funeral, conducting them for not just his church, but for, for many more in the town, and the, and the veil remains. All the way to his deathbed, he refused to remove the veil. Hawthorne writes, all through his life, that, that piece of crepe that hung between him and the world, it had separated him from cheerful brotherhood and a woman's love, and it, it kept him in the saddest of all prisons, his own heart. And yet, still lay upon his face as if to deepen the gloom of his darksome chamber and and shade him from the sunshine of eternity. And in his last sermon, wearing the veil all the way to the grave, he says, why do you tremble at me alone? Tremble also at each other. When the friend shows his inmost heart to his friend, the lover to his best beloved, When man does not vainly shrink from the eye of his creator, loathsomely treasuring up the secret of his sin, then deem me a monster for the symbol beneath which I have lived and died. The black veil remains. And Reverend Hooper wore it literally anywhere and everywhere. And so do we. I have a question for you as we enter into this today. Like when you're honest about yourself, how do you see yourself? 
Like when you peer at yourself in a mirror or a reflection or a selfie on your phone, like, like what do you really see? And can you behold it? Or do you hide? There's been different times in my life where I've looked at myself in a mirror and then I stopped because I didn't like what I saw. Do you ever find yourself hiding from others, from God, and even your own self? And what causes us to do that? Lots of things. Um, sometimes we hide in denial, like we, we have to cushion ourselves, protect ourselves, bubble wrap ourselves to make us think that things are better than they are or that we are better than they are or things aren't as bad as they are. And sometimes we hide in fear, fear of what might be seen if the veil is removed. Sometimes it's doubt, distrust, like we don't feel like we can take the veil away because it's not safe or we don't feel safe. We, we create these shadow selves, parts of ourselves that we hide behind a veil or a mask. And that mask does things for us. Like it produces in us mystery and awe and wonder. But what the shadow self cannot do is it can't produce love. Because the person you are being with other people, with yourself, with God, it's not a real person. What's most true about you remains hidden. And the veil then produces this unknowability, which for some of us is a safety net, a protection, a layer of protection. It's our, it's our super suit that resides over us. But in the end, we don't know ourselves, we don't, we don't know each other, and we don't know God. We, we can't hold our own gaze, we, we can't hold another's gaze. Have you ever noticed that? Have, have you ever, and I talked maybe about this last week or the week before, but there is this like deep intimacy when you hold another person's gaze. And ultimately, we can't hold God's because the black veil remains. Now, the Apostle Paul in our text this morning had, um, this was a little bit from last week. We didn't get, quite get to all of it. And so today, like, I want to kind of go deeper into this. He tells us that the veil has been removed through Jesus. Today's Christmas Eve, the, the long-awaited Messiah, the light of the world, as Jeremy talked about, is about to in-break. And in the, in the letter of, uh, of, of Paul to the Second Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthian church, Paul's confronting the church about their attraction to what Paul sarcastically refers to super-apostles. These super-apostles were false apostles who demeaned Paul's ministry because they, they didn't think Paul was eloquent. They didn't think that he... Uh, he had to work as a tent maker. He, he struggled in his ministry. And so Paul's encountering this co- conflict between the glory that comes from God and the glory that comes from man. One glory fleeting, the other glory lasting. But the glory, according to Paul, how does it come? It comes through suffering. And so Paul gives this example from the story of Moses in Exodus 34. After Moses meets with God and receives the law, his face shone with the glory of God. And the people, when they saw his face transformed, they they were afraid to come near to him. So Moses would cover his face with a veil. Now he did this to, to, to kind of 
assuade their fears, squash them. So whenever Moses would meet with God, he would do this, and his face would shine. And his face would shine, and so he would put a veil over his face because the people couldn't stand the shining, the dark glory imprinted upon Moses' face. So he wore a veil until the glory faded, and then he would remove the veil. Now, what Paul lets us in on is he also wore the veil for himself because he couldn't stand the glory that was fading. Paul attributes the fading glory upon Moses' face to the passing of the glory of the old covenant. The, the glory that didn't last. It, the glory that couldn't sustain God's people. It, it couldn't ultimately transform them. and It only brought to them condemnation. But the new covenant, according to Paul, is different because it isn't produced by obedience to that law, but comes completely from outside of us, from the Spirit of God. It ensures the abiding presence of God, the the face of God, which bears the glory of God, which Moses couldn't look at directly. Well, now because of Jesus, his, his coming, his incarnation, his human form, the glory is somehow hidden in the face of Jesus. And according to Paul, at least until what? The cross. In the cross, the glory of God is revealed, which is such a backwards way for us, for Israel. Because of these events, the face of God, we can now look into it and not be consumed. So you see what Paul is doing. He is saying Jesus is God, and the face of God is no longer ha- does no longer have to be hidden with smoke, no longer a cleft, a rock, God's hand over it. No longer does your face need to melt in the face of that glory. The veil is removed, and now you can look at God through Jesus, who doesn't disclose God's glory, but reveals it. Jesus' look of love, a, a, a smile shaped by grace. Jesus is the bridegroom that removes the veil, Right? Isn't that like such a significant thing? Now, we didn't have that. Danette had to remind me of this, by the way. <laughs> that in our wedding, I didn't ever, no one took the veil. She wore a veil, but she wore it kind of like on the back of her head, and it was, it was beautiful. She looked lovely. I mean, when she walked into the church that day, like because she didn't have a veil, I saw her face right away. And she was shaking. And I was in awe. The veil had been removed. My look towards her was was beaming and she was radiant. Paul is saying this is what Jesus does for us. And, and, And what that should do, it should cause us to see our own black veils, but not reside there. But to see how the light of his face, the, the look of love and favor, the uplifted, the, the result of the ironic blessing, the uplifted countenance of God, how that look is set upon us so we don't have to wear veils anymore. So I want to work through this very kind of quickly. What veils, what are the black veils that seem so stubborn and remain? The first one is the veil of the law. Now, know this, that the old covenant law, the law is good. God says the law is perfect. It's beautiful that we should love it, right? 
But the end result of the law is what? The law holds up a mirror to your face and shows you all the ways you can't meet the standard of that law. The law leads to condemnation. Now we try to run away from that. We try to measure up to the law. We we self-justify ourselves. Either, even if the, the law of God doesn't exist in your life, if you don't even think about the law of God, guess what? There is a thousand little L laws that you and I live and organize our life around to justify ourselves. We all have this impetus that's inside of us that wants to make ourselves righteous, good, to vindicate, validate our existence, right? So we turn all kinds of things into the law. It could be eating and exercise. It could be clothes and fashion. It could be politics. The way we perceive, make our perception felt on social media, it could be work. Oftentimes it's your family, your marriage, your kids. You, you, you have to justify yourself through those things. And what Paul is saying is that that veil of the law, all those ways we seek to justify ourselves and then in the process of justifying ourselves make judgments into other people because they don't measure up to our standards that we've set for ourselves. Or It's all a false, false way of being, a false self, as Richard talked about. What Paul means here is that the glory of the law is extinguished. Why? How is the veil of the law removed? Why do you not have to self-justify yourselves anymore? Because the gospel's come. As the moon and the stars, though in themselves, they're, they're not merely luminous, but diffuse light over the whole earth, do nevertheless disappear before the brightness of the sun. So however glorious the law was in itself, it has nevertheless no glory in comparison in the, uh, with the existence of the gospel. The second veil is the veil of the past. Like we all have a history. We all exist on a timeline. Right here in this moment, every one of you has a past. And that past has certain glories and certain shames, right? And the tendency to uh, the, how we live in the present is oftenly, often formed so much by our past. It's the things that we have done and the things done to us. We, we become labeled by our past. Sometimes we're victims. Sometimes we're perpetrators. And, and the veil of the past is dark. 1 Peter 1, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look. There's this veil from the past that keeps us from being able to peer into the good news of the gospel. It it hampers us. It hinders us. It keeps us from seeing Jesus in the present oftentimes because we're so chained and burdened by our past. Now, tied closely to that is the veil of the old self. Like Richard talks about, we we have this need to cover and hide and to deny who we are, what our nature is, what the old self is. So we create false selves in order to not be totally seen 
because we're afraid. Now, standing in the blessing of Christ enables us to see more clearly how we have been reconciled and restored in status. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now this is dramatized for us in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's the third of the Narnia books. Eustace Scrub was an unwilling companion on the epic voyage of the Narnia, of Narnian Prince Caspian. He's a, he's a priggish boy. He missed no opportunity to make the lives of his fellow voyagers miserable. When, when the ship landed at a remote island to make repairs, Eustace does what he does. He, he wanders off to avoid the work. He goes and finds a comfortable place where he can sleep. When he happened upon a cave containing an old dragon's hoard, he fell asleep on the, the heaps of gold and jewels with one of the many golden armlets on his arm. Waking, he discovered that he had been turned into a dragon himself. Through the lingering magic of a, a net that, that now tightly, excruciatingly tightly armlet, while his appearance to his companions naturally terrified them at first, they eventually realized that the dragon was Eustace. The, the painful armlet, his general misery, and the kindness with which his friends treated him humbled him mightily. As a dragon, he actually became helpful in the work of ship repairs and generally a much more pleasant Eustace than he had been before. But he was still a dragon. As time for the ship's departure drew near, he was faced with the prospect of being left behind. And suddenly, he appeared to the ship's company as a boy again. How? Everyone wanted to know. Now hear this. According to Eustace, the majestic lion Aslan had appeared to him and led him to a mountain pool. Without words, the lion told Eustace to wash himself. And as he did, Eustace was ecstatic to discover the dragon scales fell off with the scrubbing. Now his joy was only momentary when he saw that underneath the layer he had just scrubbed off was another layer of dragon skin. After several attempts with the same result, Eustace related, Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Man, that describes you and I's false selves. Like, your false self is useful. When Eustace wore the dragon skin, he became something that he wasn't before. And yet, he wasn't who he was supposed to be. And, and the layers, right? 
Like just when you think that the the gospel has done its work in your heart and you are living truly, you just discover that another layer exists. And to pull that layer off, oh, it's full of pain. In fact, God uses that pain to get you to this place where he can have you lay down and he could speak his words to you And he can painfully even sometimes scrub that false way of being away. Lewis says this is a a nod to baptism. There I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he got, got caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone away from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. As we contemplate the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus, we are being made human again. For this is what we see true humanity, not the false selves we create. Our false selves melt away and we become one degree of glory to another like Jesus. The the next veil is the veil of tears, Psalm 22, 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when we cried in. This is a play on words, right? The veil of tears, V-A-L-E, our, our valley of tears. Like when your children cry, what are their tears seeking? They're seeking your face if you're their parent. The, the tears are seeking comfort and love. The, the cries of a child are the cries for that face. When we suffer, because this is what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians, what is the glory of the new covenant? Christ, yes, but a Christ who suffers and dies and is raised. A Christ who can know death. What what, what stands before us? All of our tears are somehow bound up in the curse of sin, the struggle of death and life. Our tears are meant to draw, draw us to God's face. right? He tells us in the Bible, he keeps account of them. Those who mourn will behold his face and be comforted. And he says our tears have a finality. They will be wiped away. You see, sometimes grief is a dark veil we wear that keeps us from the grace in the face of God. But they're meant. The the, the very ache that you experience in this life is the ache for the face of your creator, God. Last, and, and let me just say something about this because I've struggled most of my life with grief. Allowing myself to grieve, allowing myself to be sad, I'm what would be called an Enneagram 7, 
pain is the thing I seek to avoid most in my life. And so to cry is to be in pain. And, and these three months with y'all have been some of the most painful of my life. I don't understand it. And you, you probably don't either. I don't know all the time in these moments what God is up to and why he's calling me away. And it's a deep pain. And yet, just to say, in God's gracious kindness to me, I have learned in these three months how to grieve and how to give my tears to God and seek his face and find it. And for that, I'm really, really grateful. The last veil is the veil of the future, which also has lots of implications for us, City Press. The future can keep us. It's a veil that we wear. Like some of us exist in the past, and some of us exist in the future, and all of it keeps us from being present in the moment, in the now. The dark veil of the future, what might be, what could be, and the ways we seek to control our life, to somehow determine our futures? That is a veil. It keeps us from the gospel, and it keeps us from Jesus. It causes us to be masters of our fate and our, our domains, when all the while God has set before you the reality of your future, and you live in the moment with that reality being the thing, so you don't have to control you can let go of control to the shaping love of God, right? Paul says, you're going to change as you behold Christ from one degree of glory to another. That, that's a promise of the gospel. Whatever is in the future, whatever was in your past, is all God, like a sculptor, touching your tender face, molding, shaping, making you and conforming you to his son from one degree of glory to the other. Jesus is giving you back your face again. So you don't have to justify. You don't have to judge. You don't have to do a deep fake. The veil has been pulled away. And everything's transforming you into the image of the son by the tender whispers of the Spirit. You see, the reason the super apostles were blind to it, and we are too, is the suffering. They could not see through suffering as a way for God's face to be imprinted upon theirs. The, the source of the transforming glory, the one who says, let light shine from the darkness, the one who says the darkness can't overcome the light, is the face of Jesus. The Jesus who suffered and died. And Paul asserts that the church at Corinth, and us too, are being called to conform to that image shaped by a cross. It's almost like Jesus the sculptor uses the cross as his, his, his main instrument of shaping your and I's face so the veil can be removed. So give me, let me give you these quick points of application. First, practice seeing 
Practice seeing, because of Jesus, the black veil is lifted. His face is your life. How do you practice seeing his face? How, how do you behold the light of the glory in the face of Christ? How do you do that? You avail yourselves to the grace to see yourself rightly by hearing God's voice. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ with the help of the Spirit through the testimony of God's word. The Spirit, which inspired the Word and now indwells us, testifies to you and I the Word of glory of God in the face of Christ. We see then by hearing. It was God's voice, not His form, by which the people of Israel would know the Lord. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of His words, but saw no form, only a voice. The Spirit who removes the veil is the same veil, uh, same Spirit who inspired Scripture, which testifies to the incarnate Word, Jesus. The inspired writers of Scripture told what they had seen and heard so that we might hear and believe. Blessed are you who believe even though you do not see. So, practice seeing by hearing the word. Now, some of you, that means you have to hear true words about who you are. Like all those false selves, like Richard talks about, behind those false selves, there is this deep and holy desire for acceptance and love that only comes through Christ. Most of you need to be gentle with yourselves in relation to that false self, and hear God's words of love. He rejoices over you with loud singing. That's what you need to hear to practice seeing. Second, long for his look. Sometimes I'll just, in the morning, we'll be, Danette sits in a chair across from me. I sit in another chair. We're drinking coffee, and I'll just look at her and stare and see if she notices my gaze, right? And then she'll look at me and she goes, what's up? Why do I do that? I seek her face because I desire it. We seek things because we want them. We want those things because we anticipate their delights. At the end of the summer in the Hundred Acre Wood, Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh lazed in the shade of a tree and Christopher Robin asked Pooh what he liked doing best. And Pooh responded, Well, is that good, Jaden? What I like best is honey. But then he had to stop and think, because although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before you began to eat it which was better than when you were eating it. But he didn't know what that was called. And then he thought that being with Christopher Robin was a very th good thing to do. Friends, Jesus is the lovely source of true delight. And contemplating his loveliness as the dear desire of every nation makes him the joy of every longing heart. Therefore, we must long for a look. To be looked upon by the face of God means 
loved, you are delighted in. It means that you're enthralled. Therefore, we unmask since Christ has been unveiled. And when, when we see not just what God sees, but how God looks upon us, we can say, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Let's pray. God, help us to see by hearing your words. Those words can be like those painful claws ripping away our false selves, calling us to be to the true self, Jesus. Like hearing those words that you speak over us can be painful, but they're also freedom because where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. Because your Spirit crafted your words when they whisper to us. They loose the chains that have bound us. They wash us. And then you look at us. And that look is a look of love, not condemnation, because of Jesus. It's a look of grace, because Jesus met the requirements of the law. We don't have to. It's a look of freedom so that we can wander in your big, wide world, enjoying the beauty, the pleasures of it, attributing all that back to you, reflecting it all back to you. You are the Father of lights. You can help us as we wander this world and look at each other face to face. Unveiled, intimate, real. And with our neighbor, one who may be far from you, we don't have to be okay so that we can make them okay. We can be who we are so that the grace of God shines through us. Help us, we pray. Even as we take communion this morning and reflect on your incarnation, what that means for us, that we would taste and see that you are good. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.